Hi, friend. Uh, thank you for those of you who clapped before you heard me preach. That was generous of you. Gosh, what a joy. It's an absolute delight to look out and see all your faces. Um, good evening from me, and uh, if I haven't spoken to you in person yet, a really warm welcome from me as well. Uh, especially if this is your first time with us, it's a joy to have you with us, it really is. And this evening, as Rachel said, we are starting a new series of talks looking at the book of Genesis. We're going back to the beginning to look at what God has to tell us about our identity, the origin story of the universe and God's people. I think the very first origin story that we find ourselves and the, sorry that we find for ourselves in this reality we find ourselves in is in three parts. That's in Genesis's first three chapters. Genesis one gives a cosmic perspective. Genesis two a really intimate perspective. And Genesis 3 rounds off the how did the world come to be like this story with humanity's ultimate fail, setting the scene for the rest of the Bible's dysfunctional relationship between a loving, good God and a rebellious, stubborn humanity. So as we look at the part one of the Genesis 1 to 3 trilogy tonight, the question we will be asking the passage is this. What is God telling us about himself? about creation, and about humanity in this chapter. My friend Carol has very kindly agreed to read this for us. While she's coming up, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles if you brought one, Bible device if you have one of those, uh, to the very first page. We, we could have said we picked Genesis just because it's easy to find. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the words will appear on the screen. And uh, Carol, let me give you one of these. Hang on a second. Oh, it's all covid -y. Right, hang on. I've got to put my mask on. Right, move that out of the way. And then you get your own microphone. Isn't that good? Thank you, mate. Does it work? <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's 17 years, by the way. <laughs> the opening words of our Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it 
according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be light in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give the light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over ever every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, 
By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of the creating he had done. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Carol. And what a massive reading that was. Let me just slide this back. Lovely. Do have your Bibles, if you've got them in front of you, digital or or paper copy, uh, have that to hand because we'll be whizzing through it and uh, just occasionally verses will appear again on the screen. When we approach the... Thank you. When we approach the book of Genesis... It is important to have in mind what question we're asking of it. If you are sitting down with God to write out his people's and the universe's origin story, there are a number of ways, a number of ways you could go about it. You could go super technical. All right, Lord, tell us about those photons, quarks. Tell us about the theory of relativity, string theory, and you know, whatever replaces those when we discover that one's right. Or you could say, God show me what happened like a video, and I'll write down what I see. Or you could say, Lord, what do you want people to know about the beginning? What do you want to communicate by this story? I think that when we, communi- when we uh, approach the book of Genesis as an intentionally communicated message, rather than a how to build a universe manual mysteriously dropped out of heaven, We can remember that there was a human author writing to a human audience filled with and guided by the presence of God. To me, the obvious approach to writing something like Genesis 1 is, Lord, what do you want us to know about yourself, about ourselves, and about the reality that we find ourselves in? The dinosaurs, the Big Bang, evolution and other theories They can come later and in a different way. I don't think that's what this teaching slot is for in God's message to us. But that could cause us some difficulties. As a fairly anti-Christian, a very anti-Christian 18-year-old, I was convinced that dinosaur fossils and the theory of evolution had proven the Bible wrong and useless once and for all. And I know many people who were brought up understanding Genesis 1 to be a detailed historical account of what happened in the beginning. Well, they can find their faith in God shaken or shattered by the scientific evidence that cosmologists, archaeologists, and evolutionary scientists discover and present. But I don't think that's what Genesis 1 is for. I don't think that the how is what God wanted to tell us. I think the who and the why, the truths about what God is like, what humanity was made for, how we relate to him and to this reality are far more important. Which means that if we wake up tomorrow to the news headlines that declared theory of evolution debunked, age of universe recalculated to 6,000 years old, those headlines wouldn't change how we read Genesis 1 tonight. As God's message to us about how we relate to creation and to him. So, what is God telling us about himself, ourselves, 
and creation in Genesis chapter 1? The answer, of course, is lots. Much, much more than one talk can do justice to. As ever, this one talk could have been a sermon series. But this evening, I will draw our attention to just a few highlights and headlines to help us unpack what I think is an ancient treasure trove of truths. So shall we begin in verse 1? The very first thing that God wanted us to know about himself and about this reality is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, all of this, this world, those stars, those stunning landscapes, the good bit of Instagram, God did that. Straight away and fundamentally, we learn that this reality doesn't stand independently of God. It's a creation, the result of a willful act of a being who designed it. If this sounds obvious to you, or something we take for granted, imagine for a moment if this wasn't in the Bible. Imagine if the relationship between God and reality was more of a, ah, you know, he's a supernatural being who gets involved in the world from time to time and exists sort of alongside it. That would change our understanding of reality and of who God is hugely. Because this line is in our Bibles, we know that reality is contingent. It could have been otherwise, or it could have not been at all. And we know something about how hugely powerful God is to have brought it all into being. That's a pretty important start. Going on in verse 2, we read that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Earth, or land, matter, was without shape, without order or boundaries, without meaning. And the deep, the abyss of waters, was covered in darkness. Now, to the original readers of Genesis, they would instantly be struck by the big contrast to the beginning stories from the Sumerian, Babylonian, and Egyptian cultures. The Bible's account has much less of a negative start. In the other ancient Near Eastern accounts, there's a battle to be fought. There's adversity to be overcome. Creation involves a sort of a battle and a wrestling of these monsters, powerful forces, into their place. God's description to us of how creation came about, that initial state of unformed stuff is his blank canvas. It's a neutral state. He brings it into being and then shapes it. God just has to speak to get these things going. Again, God is powerful. This contrast is huge. The ancient readers would have spotted that straight away. No battle against any other being is needed. God is unchallenged. There's no one else to rival him. And verse 2 also contains this, oh, a fascinating Hebrew point that, understands, uh, that underlines God's order and control, which I don't have time for this evening. So if you're interested, ask me later because I'm dying to tell you. That orderly boundarying work continues in verse 3. God says, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. 
in those evening, those morning, the first day. So that darkness that was over the surface of the deep a verse ago in verse 2, God has spoken light into being, declared it good, has imposed boundaries and order on the darkness, given it a place in the created order. The picture that emerges as we go through Genesis 1 is that God is the order-creating artist at work. We're learning that he is all-powerful over creation, that he likes good boundaries, and that he creates things that are good. We see God set boundaries as you skim through for the land and the sea, and he declares those boundaries good. We see God creating plant life, vegetation, trees that bear fruit, and we call those things good. We see God create the sun, the moon, the stars, which are to help differentiate between day and night and to serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. There's order, there's structure, and it's good. And we see God creating fish and birds, livestock, land animals, blessing them, calling them good, and declaring that they should multiply. Throughout Genesis 1, this relationship that is emerging between creation and creator is where God is calling life into being. Fruitful plants, teeming fish and birds, and he's calling those things good. And again, we're seeing in the lights in the sky, God is providing order, structure, regularity to this created reality. He's not creating chaos. He's not creating a jungle. He's creating a beautiful and balanced, boundaried garden. That's the picture we're presented with. Even, actually, the structure of days in Genesis 1 tells us something about God and creation. It's orderly, structured. There's you know, box one, box two. Days one to three are God creating realms, sea, sky, land, and days four to six, God filling each, land, each realm with life. It's like the ultimate organized to-do list. If Caitlin had been there, she'd have been delighted. That structure is reinforcing to us that God spoke it into being. Every day begins, and God said. And as we go through, we see there's such order to creation. It is good. God saw that it was good. Seven times in seven days. Everywhere we look, it is good, it is good, and it's all in its place under the creative power and the goodness of God. Okay, that's quite a nice picture. We're learning a bit about God and a bit about creation there. And then in verse 26, God moves to the crescendo of creation, the high point humanity. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What can we learn about mankind, about humanity from these verses? What about us? Well, firstly, again, fairly obviously, we were created by God. Humanity is here because God wanted us here, Genesis 1 tells us. Our relationship to him is as created beings to creator being. We are, but we could have not been. He is. 
Secondly, unlike anything else in creation, we are created in God's image. Now, oh boy, exploring what the image of God means and, and contains within it, that could be a sermon series in its own. And uh, man, people have, have come up with a whole load of different things that they think the image of God could mean. When we look at what God is like through the rest of the Bible and humanity's experience of him, people have said, oh, the image of God, uh, God is creative, so humanity is creative. That must be what it is to be in the image of God. Uh, God is love. Humanity is, you know, sometimes loving. Uh, and when we're behaving, you know, that must be what the image of God is. And God is intelligent. Humanity has its, its moments. Uh, the list of things that people have thought might be the image of God is long and varied and Actually, Genesis 1 gives us a helping hand here. Verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, well, hang on, so that they may rule the, over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Even if your translation doesn't have the so that, the fact that these sentences are next to each other is telling us something. We could learn from Genesis 1, I think, that humanity's stated purpose is to rule over the creatures of creation. We are park ranger and zookeeper in this beautiful garden that he set up for us, teeming with life. And just as God has brought in boundaries and order so that life flourishes, so in his image, we're designed to establish and maintain healthy order in creation. And in being commissioned to do this, God also blessed humanity. He favored us and provided for us as we carried out our mission. Verse 29 says, uh, God said, I, will, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Looking back, at all that he has made in days one to six, God declares that his finished work with humanity commissioned as its crowning glory is very good. That makes us a deliberately designed special part of creation, blessed and given a purpose. Humanity's relationship to creation, this reality we find ourselves in, is to represent God to it to carry God's image around within it, to be park ranger and zookeeper with the presence of the Lord Almighty within us. And looking after and continuing to beautify the garden of this earth that he has entrusted to us. It's pretty good. I didn't, no, Jim didn't see that it was, I, mean, I just think it's good. And our relationship to him is that God designed us to represent him. He created us male and female, to be his image. He blessed us. He gave us meaning and a purpose and provided for us. This is a positive, a caring, meaning-given origins story. This account of where we come from and how we can find our identity is foundationally good. Okay, so lastly, to wrap up what this first account in Genesis tells us about God, creation, and ourselves, we get to day seven. Beginning in chapter two, verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What is this doing here? If Genesis had been a flow of how did stuff get made, day seven would be entirely redundant. Nothing gets made. But in our tell us where we fit in this reality in relation to you, God, and in relation to creation account, in that version of Genesis 1, day seven tells us something important about God and about ourselves. Even before we get anywhere near God's Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, we have an idea of a dedicated day of rest introduced right from the first day of creation in the Bible. Well, the seventh anyway. God modeled rest for us long before he told us to follow suit. The order that God established in creation includes him devoting a day to holy rest. I think that's a lovely thing. And sometimes when we struggle to take that into account in our lives, I think we can suffer the consequences. I, and I know many others, found John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, to be a powerful and timely reminder of the need for healthy rhythms over the last couple of years. It did phenomenally well. If you've not heard of it, then uh, just a quick search on the internet and you'll come across it. It was, it was good. I think it was a word for our time, actually. I think God used that to, to encourage and challenge us as his people across the world. He talks challengingly about our need to guard a Sabbath in our weekly rhythms. God's message to us, to his people, in the first Genesis creation account about where we came from even includes God resting. That's a pretty big statement. And if we haven't guarded a day each week to spend resting with God, then I think it's a pretty big challenge to us. So, to conclude, what is Genesis 1 for? I don't think it's a scientific how-to of the creation of the universe. Could be, but I, I don't think so. I think it's a statement of who did it and why. It's God's message to us to tell us who he is, to tell us what creation is like, and to ground our identities as humanity in relation to him and to the world. From the very beginning, we meet a God who is all-powerful, unopposed by any force, who is able to speak universes into being. He's creative. And he likes to create things that are good. Shouldn't take that for granted. A big part of that goodness is that he's created boundaries and order. The seas, the land, the sky all have their place and their limit in God's design. The lights in the sky govern days and seasons. The animals, though instructed to multiply fruitfully, are given humanity to maintain good order and balance over. God's creation and his way is very good. Okay, so what does Genesis 1 tell us about humanity, about us? Well, the Genesis 1 picture is that we, friends, are the crowning glory of this creation. 
We are intended as something special, to partner with God as his in-creation image carriers, continuing his good order. We have a purpose. We're no accident, no pretty ornament. We have a job to do. And we haven't touched on this this evening, but we don't seem to me to be very good at it. More on that, that in a couple of weeks. For now, though, we see humanity designed, blessed, privileged with partnership with this good God, and declared very good. Not a bad identity statement. Well then, how do we respond to these truths laid out for us in Genesis 1? I reckon our right response to reading Genesis chapter 1 is worship. If we read this and, and take seriously the claims it's making about who God is, then Lord, wow. Thank you. Look at all this. It's pretty great. Glory to you, God. You are so powerful. You're so good. And I think the invitation to us is to recognize God's place in relation to creation and to us, and having seen those things, to praise him, to rightly say, God, you are good. And perhaps maybe more of a challenge to us, I think Genesis 1 invites us to ask, to ask if our own lives reflect that good order, the good boundaries that he has imaged us to reflect. I suggest if you haven't got this already, that you start with Sabbath. It's a really good idea. Devoting a day to spending with him, if you don't already. And I suggest that as well as that, we ask God to bring his order, his way, his control into every realm of our lives. Friends, I suggest that as we read Genesis 1, we reach out to God in praise and adoration. We ask him to use his mighty power and his best plans to work in and through each of our own lives so that with him we can see that it's very good.